Gracious God, may only your words be spoken and your words be heard. Amen. There is a corny little prayer you've probably seen or read so many times you roll your eyes at it, but actually I think it's pretty appropriate for us to consider this morning. And it goes like this. Dear God, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. And I feel really good about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. Today's gospel is a continuation of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as it's found in Matthew. And part of the reason I think we need to be reminded of that little prayer is if you remember from last week, Jesus ended the portion last week by saying, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in today's gospel portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spells out what that means. In today's gospel, we get the first four of six statements that Jesus makes, which biblical scholars call antithesis, or oppositions, or contrasts. And each of them follow the same pattern, which you probably picked up. Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And in each instance, Jesus radicalizes the law. In the original sense of the word radical. Root, as in radish. In each instance, Jesus returns to the roots of God's law, the spirit of God's law, the intent of God's law. First, the case of murder and its root cause of anger. The way that the paraphrase called the message puts it is this. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder, I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Therefore, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that you are angry, that you're holding a grudge, leave your gift at the altar and first go be reconciled and then come back and offer your gift. I want to pause there for just a second and share a point that the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright makes about how that would have sounded to Jesus's original listeners, or at least his Galilean rural listeners. It would have sounded crazy. Remember that in Jesus' day, making your gift at the altar was not putting some cash or writing a check and putting it into the offertory plate. In Jesus' day and time, making your gift at the altar meant walking two or three days to Jerusalem, purchasing a small animal, or if you could afford it, a larger animal, 
and bringing that live animal to the temple. And there it would be sacrificed and offered. If you had walked two days to Jerusalem and bought your turtle dove or your pigeon or your goat and had gotten to the altar and there all of a sudden you remembered that someone back home and you have a grudge between you, you couldn't just leave your animal there at the altar, walk back two days, find that person, be reconciled, walk two days back to Jerusalem, and resume your offering. Who would take the animal? Not the priests. And you can't sell it back. So the reason it's important to go into all that detail is, you know the word hyperbole? It's a literary device, meaning making a wild exaggeration in order to make a point. Here, leave your gift at the altar and go first be reconciled, and you'll be very happy to know, also, when Jesus says that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, or if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off, Jesus is engaging in something called hyperbole. He's using a rhetorical device to make a point. If, however, you are looking for passages from Jesus to take literally, try forgive others as you have been forgiven. Or do not judge. Or you cannot serve both God and wealth. Or I was hungry and you gave me food. I was in prison and you visited me. Or, do not worry, let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Those are good sayings to take literally. The point is, of leave your gift at the altar and first go be reconciled. The point is, for people for whom worship was a central action, a very important, if not most important activity, Jesus is saying that reconciling with someone is even more important than worship. It takes precedence even over the worship of God. Then Jesus moves on to tackle the topic of adultery and its root cause of lust. Again, from the paraphrase, in the message. You know the next commandment pretty well. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you've preserved your your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Most people will live their entire life without actually physically killing someone. Married couples can go years, decades, their entire married lives without actually having sex outside their marriage. But the roots of those behaviors, which Jesus names as anger and lust, those accompany us daily. Those emotions, those feelings, accompany us constantly. So the question is not, do we have those thoughts and feelings? Jesus seems to assume we will have them. The question is, 
What do we do with it? How do we act upon them, if at all? Where will we let them take us? Then Jesus moves on to talk about divorce. Again, the paraphrase in the message gives us a fresh take. Remember the scripture that says, whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights? Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. Again, in this case, Jesus is saying that following the letter of the law is not enough. And the underlying spirit of the law that Jesus is trying to get after in this saying on divorce is to try to dismantle the particularly noxious effects of the patriarchy of Jesus' day and culture. The rules around divorce and remarriage in that day, like the laws in general, and like following the letter of the law in particular, they disproportionately benefited men and victimized women. Jesus was saying, in effect, look, when I'm saying that I'm not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, I mean I'm here to fill it full. I'm here to remind you that God's laws, properly understood and applied, are not so much restrictions on freedom as they make true freedom possible. The law is supposed to be life-giving, especially for the most vulnerable people in society. So if anyone is using divorce, or any other kind of law in a way that is not life-giving, liberating good news, they are not fulfilling it. They are not obeying it, but rather they are abusing it and others. Jesus goes on from that to talk about oath-keeping, warning us about manipulating words to get our way. Then Jesus goes on to say in portions of the sermon that we are not hearing in the lectionary, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but, and you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, return energies of hate with energies of love. He'll go on to say that when you pray or when you fast or when you give alms, do it in secret and not for show. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth because you cannot serve both God and wealth. Consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Don't worry about your life, your food, your drink, your clothes, or tomorrow. He'll then say, don't judge others. Because every time you judge another human being, you're like a person trying to remove a tiny little speck from someone else's eye while you're walking around yourself with a railroad tie in your own eye. He says, first, remove that giant log from your own eye, and then you might be able to see a bit more clearly the speck that is in someone else's eye. Ask, search, knock for what you need. It'll be given. You'll find it. Doors will open. But 
The gate is narrow, he says, and there are false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. Watch out for them. And he'll conclude his Sermon on the Mount, and I'll conclude mine, with saying this. People who say, Lord, 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 but don't actually put their faith into action, are like people who build houses on shifting sand. So, he says, build your spiritual house not on the sand of inaction, but build your spiritual house on the practical, on the, on the solid rock of practical, everyday implementation of faith. There's a saying that Christianity has not been tried and found inadequate. It's been found difficult and not tried. Being called, as we are, to fulfill the spirit of God's law is not easy. And fulfilling the spirit of God's law perfectly is impossible. But that's not a reason to give up. It's not a reason not to try. Not being able to fulfill God's law is a reason to not be self-righteous. It is a reason when we are short on love, when we're short on peace or patience or gentleness or self-control or any other fruit of the Spirit, it is a reason to go to the inexhaustible source of love and peace and patience and generosity and self-control in our daily prayer. Not being able to fulfill the Spirit of God's law is a reason in other words, to keep saying individually and as a faith community, God, we've heard a lot today about how to live lives that are not characterized by anger and greed and nastiness or judgmentalism, and we're really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, we're going to get out of our pews and go back into our cars and into our lives. And so, we're going to need a lot more help. And so, please, remind us to call upon you and to return daily and hourly to your inexhaustible grace. Amen.